Hello, and welcome to the CSJ's Beyond Westminster podcast, where we bring you the real stories from across Britain's forgotten communities. In this episode, we discuss the major challenges we face around digital exclusion in the UK and shed light on how it's exacerbating the impact of the cost of living crisis for low-income households who are already grappling with hundreds of pounds in added expenses for basic necessities. Our groundbreaking report, Left Out, exposes that 11% of UK households say they can't access the internet at home, and this disproportionately affects the poor and the elderly, and is nearly double Ofcom's official estimate. Joining us today to discuss these challenges and, importantly, explore the potential solutions are a panel of guests who bring a wealth of expertise around digital exclusion and its impact on vulnerable people. Our guests include David Duffy, Group CEO of Virgin Money, Helen Milner, OBE, Group CEO of the Good Things Foundation, Paul Maynard, the Conservative MP for Blackpool North and Clevelands, Matthew Greenwood, the CSJ's Head of Debt and Financial Inclusion, and Tom Ahern, our Senior Researcher in the CSJ's Debt Unit. So, on today's episode, we invite you to go beyond the sensational headlines, beyond the surface of the stories, and beyond Westminster. You're just paying over the odds. That is how the poverty premium, the extra costs of being poor, was described to me. In November 2022, the Centre for Social Justice unveiled that nearly 7 million people are paying a poverty premium for basic goods and services, such as energy, insurance and credit. But we also heard that digital exclusion is a key driver of this. Today, we'll explore digital exclusion and how it interacts with the poverty premium. But what is digital exclusion? Helen Milner is the CEO of the Good Things Foundation. The Good Things Foundation is a charity working to end the digital divide. Digital exclusion is um, where people don't have the basic digital skills to function in our society and or they can't afford um, access to the internet, um, including either a device and or connectivity, either fixed line or, or, or mobile. So it's both access and skills um but actually you could be digitally excluded where you just have you lack one or the other of those the good things foundation we're a national charity um we uh, work with thousands of community organizations so it's that those hyper local partners are so important community centers small local charities libraries and we support them to help local people who are digitally excluded to get skills. We also have a national data bank, so helping half a million people with free mobile connectivity so that they don't get cut off. Um, And we also have a national device bank taking um, unused old uh, devices from um, corporates and from public sector, hopefully from government too, um, and putting those into the hands of digitally excluded people so that people who can't afford it get the access they need and people who don't have the skills can get the support to get those skills that they need. Digital exclusion extends beyond more than just data access. Think of it instead as three pieces connected to each other. We start with devices, then we move to data, and then to capability. With each one comes an added benefit, and without the predecessor, its successor isn't very helpful. Although now we've got the National Data Bank and we've got over 1,200 local data banks, so we've got a very large number of people using those. Think of them like food banks, but for mobile connectivity data. Um, That those people sometimes are only um, uh, so poor that they can't afford internet access. 
Um, but the majority of the people that we support through the National Digital Inclusion Network probably both lack some form of access and skills. And there's a massive overlap in the UK between people who lack those basic digital skills and their income. Um, so, for example, during the pandemic, um, that I think a lot of people were shocked to find out that 25%, so one in four children in the, the poorest households didn't have an internet-connected device. Um, and I think that before the pandemic, there was this assumption that it was only older people who hadn't had the opportunity to use um, computers and the internet in their working life um, who were excluded. But actually, we then became aware that this was there was a massive overlap with um, income um, and that it affected all ages. Um, and often people who are on low income have... Um, Maybe they might be unemployed. They might have. Uh, they might not um, have job stability. They might be in and out of work, um, and often they might not have done that well at school either. And so that you've got people who have got who who have some skill but not enough skill in the digital world to to be sufficient to to be able to function and then hopefully to prosper but also they they currently don't have enough money to be able to really afford that broadband connectivity or, or a device other than a smartphone sometimes sometimes they might have a smartphone for a very long time we thought that digital exclusion is only something that affects the elderly now the evidence suggests that may not be true I sat down with Tom Ahern, a senior researcher at the Centre for Social Justice. At the CSJ, we found that 10% of households, interesting, don't have access to the internet at home. And contrary to popular opinion, it's, we found that it's not just elderly people that don't have access, but it's also working age people and people on low incomes too. Paul Maynard is the MP for Blackpool North and Cleveleys and a fierce campaigner in favour of financial inclusion. I think it can be a broad range of people. I think when you say digital exclusion, people automatically think, oh, it must be the elderly who haven't got the experience of using the internet and so on and so forth. And yes, many of those are, are certainly uh, digitally excluded, but it's also those who are maybe at the lower end of the financial uh, spectrum in that they maybe can't afford to get online. They don't have the phones that many of us now rely on. They may well be in a rural area, remotely located, and don't have the access they need to, to broadband that means that they can participate in the online world. So it's a wide range of people, far more than perhaps we might think. Digital exclusion is a problem in of itself because it cuts people off from an increasingly modern and connected world. I sat down with David Duffy, the group CEO of Virgin Money, to talk about some of the consequences of digital exclusion. Virgin Money is committed to working to eradicate the poverty premium. Yeah, I, I think that they can be pretty severe. I mean, I look at it as three broad areas, but if you look at the macro, 10% of all households um, could suffer from digital exclusion and 20% and of lower income households. So that's quite a significant one in five in the population um, of, of lower income households. You, you have to look at how we use it and extrapolate to if you didn't have it. Um, and, and when I look at it, you know, accessing basic services is the first of the three things I think about. And you know, I give you a practical example. That sometimes it's theory. We had somebody come into one of our branches recently. They were looking for a job, and they were in a panic because they had run out of data. They had a limited affordability. They ran out of it, and they, they, they you know, through the work with the, the the Good Thing Foundation, we were able to offer them a digital SIM and twenty gigabyte of free 
um, access. And, and I think I, I, I was struck by the story because I looked at it. Wow! If this person who really is in need is really suffering from a level of poverty, has an opportunity for a job and just can't execute because of a lack of access to the routine model that we think is ours life, that would be tragic. And then you know when you have um, you know limited funds. Accessing tools that help you make the most of them has to be critical. And we've seen a lot of, you know, turn to us as a tool we, we, we've incorporated onto our website. And we have seen a very significant amount of people, 38,000, access that tool and discover that they could have benefits they were entitled to. So, so maximizing your income or maximizing the value of what you have in income is great. And then, you know, just accessing the best deals. We, we would all do it at some level in life. And, you know, I look at it and some of the analysis we've done, you know, people in lower-income households can pay 43% more for insurance. And why? Um, and it's just because there may be an economically justified argument where, where there's a higher cost to serve in some way, but frankly, that, you know, you can argue that that's socially just. So I think there is a, a lot to think about. Digital exclusion can be soul-destroying because it can affect so many fundamentals in your life. Um, so I think it's really important that we tackle this topic things tend to cost more when you get them offline than when you get them online. And one of the, the reasons for that is a slightly increased cost to serve. I mean, what are the other reasons? Why is it that things cost more offline than they do online? Well, it, it, there's it's a bunch of factors. And, you know, there's a perceived cost to serve. There's an element of, um, you know, when we talk to some of the big firms, they're, 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 they tell you interesting things like the contact centers. 90% of the volume is focused on 10% of those who, who need contact with them. And that's usually a lower income household and there can be mispayments, there can be all kinds of dynamics to run that. There's the method of payment too. And I remember as a student, um, you know, looking at, uh, I was next to no money, working part-time, being a student and using a meter. And I remember how frustrating and how, how you know, upsetting that could be uh, on many levels. I look at that and, and say, um, maybe, you know, this CSJ has sponsored before some initiatives around this with the government and, and bringing prepayment meters in line with direct debits. Then there's stuff that just compounds, and this is the thing that's very dispiriting. You know, your credit rating, you're on a lower income, you're liable to have a lower credit rating, and that means you pay more for your premiums. But then you might also, because you're on a lower income, live in a geographical location where there's a high crime area, and you pay more for your premiums. Um, and, and, and then you add to that the fact that if you're not digitally linked, it's hard to get online to access the best deal. So, each of these areas compounds its, its impact and you get into a bit of a, a negative loop in terms of your, your ability to get out of that system of, of lower income structurally costing you more. So I, I think it's, it's fundamental in our society today to, to tackle these things because the combination of them is, is, is really damaging in society. Another closely related consequence of digital exclusion is the poverty premium. The poverty premium is where people on low incomes pay more for goods and services. And this is probably for one of three reasons, either because they're seen as being at a higher risk or because they're more costly to serve or because they are in some way limited. I mean, I think it's almost a, a circular trap in that people have low financial re resilience, low savings, and that means that they have fewer choices on offer when it comes to some of the bigger purchases. We'll just take food, for example. Um, Many residents maybe can't afford to take a bus to the large out-of-town superstore at the edge of Blackpool. They're forced to rely upon smaller convenience stores, 
on their council estates where they pay a market for those groceries that they are forced to pay that bit more for their weekly shop. And that adds up over time and it costs them money. And they're also much more vulnerable to when things go wrong. Um, if a washing machine breaks down and you can't afford a new one and can't find the funds to pay for a new one, then you find yourself going to the laundrette, paying far more for each load of washing and drying, for example. So it's almost like a trap. And the point David makes around access to credit, as I think a fundamental one, it's very hard for people to start proving that they are reliable uh, financially and can start to pay back when they take out a loan. It's incredibly hard. There's a lack of credit building products. The FCA doesn't really regulate the territory well, in my view. So people can't start out by proving that they can manage a small loan, even at relatively high cost credit, that they move on to the lower cost credit that really is what the rest of us are entitled to. So there's, a, there's this real structural imbalance here that people can't get off on the right foot to prove that they are reliable borrowers in the first place. The Centre for Social Justice currently estimates that 7 million people are paying a poverty premium. Well, I think it potentially affects the vast majority of my constituents, even. Um, everyone is supposed to be three paydays away, or not everyone, but a lot of people are three paydays away from financial destitution. Uh, the average savings for those under 40 is just £95. So many, many, many people in this country, the 40 million that David quoted, lack basic financial resilience. So when the unexpected happens, they aren't necessarily in a position where they can cope with that. And that doesn't mean to say that they're all out of work or living in poverty already. They may well be in work, but they are living at the margins of financial uh, survival. And that is only increased as a result of the cost of living crisis. Well, often many people will come and just raise specific aspects of this issue. You know, I've done a bit of work, for example, on insurance policies for white goods and the inability of people to access those. But that's come about because I've met people for whom this has been an issue. The microwave goes, they rely on takeaways. That's at the you know, £20 a throw for the family. So you see the practical consequences of some of these structural inequalities that, that really the market should be addressing and could be addressing, but simply aren't. Too many financial institutions have withdrawn from serving these most marginal customers because they see no profit in it at all. So that leaves uh, people with nowhere else to turn, really. To make matters worse, Digital exclusion and the poverty premium can compound each other, creating a cycle of increasingly mounting costs. If you can't get online, you can't compare deals, and you can't find out that you're being charged more than you might otherwise be if you searched around. Yeah, I think that's one of the most, um, I don't want to use the word heavily, but toxic kind of elements of, of the circumstance that people can find themselves in, because you, you, can, you can say, um, you start out uh, looking for insurance, but you're living in a, an area with a high crime rate. Um, so you're, you're already paying for that. And then if you don't have online capabilities and you can't shop around, you could end up paying a premium for what you've actually purchased. So through no fault of your own, and even you don't even know that it's happened, you may end up with the consequences of the two elements paying a double premium. Uh, and that just, um, you know, crazy. And, and something we absolutely should put a huge effort into eliminate. In a cost of living crisis where interest rates are relatively high and the costs of all goods still feel like they're going up, more needs to be done to tackle these issues. Let's start with digital exclusion. 
So we've been thinking about this issue of digital exclusion, and we believe that we've boiled it down to a three-pronged approach to tackle each issue, and that's devices, data, and capabilities. So these are the three fundamentals that you need in a new digital inclusion strategy. You have to put digital exclusion at the heart of the digital strategy. Uh, I think we have to be careful not to talk about just new and exciting digital things. We, we need to talk about how we make digital inclusion a part of the strategy in every aspect of the conversation. Um, and I think we've looked at the, the, the issues as we've talked about the access to devices, access to data, and digital confidence or capability, which involves training. Uh, there's lots of things the government kind of should be doing, like the you know, VAT tariffs or VAT on social tariffs could be changed. They're the practical things, but I think the most powerful, um, I suppose, reference that I would have from other experiences in life is the the government, you know, the government's financial inclusion policy form existed. It sort of fell to the side a bit with the, the many changes going on. And I think with the, the with the right people across industry in that forum committed to making change, I think we could have a huge impact. So so I think that's something the government could do, use its convening power, get that forum together, get the right people in the room and get some answers to these these two questions. So um Actually, the House of Lords brought out a really great report recently on digital exclusion, had loads of great recommendations in there. So this isn't one of my top three, but they definitely should read that because it was a very blunt and uh, but honest um, assessment of where the government's been going wrong, I would say, over the over the last decade. Um, so top three recommendations. Um, absolutely, firstly, in the work that we do with the National Digital Inclusion Network is um, support this grassroots, the digital inclusion hubs, that that's what we call them, the community centres and local charities and libraries, so that there's somewhere local for people to go, but obviously coordinate that nationally so there's some kind of consistent, there's some kind of sharing of that information, but absolutely those grassroots organisations reach those digitally excluded people and often support them in, in a really broad way. Um, secondly, and much more practically, I've mentioned the National Device Bank that gets devices from corporates. Um, the, the government obviously employs a lot of people. So if those end of life um, laptops, phones, tablets could come to the device bank, that we have um, five times more demand for devices than we actually have the supply of devices. So those government devices obviously securely wiped, obviously no no um, secrets shared with anybody, um, but getting those um, out and into the hands of excluded people. Um, and thirdly, um, that an, a number of uh, broadband providers and uh, mobile broadband providers have provided social tariffs, mm -hmm. um, which are great, um, the government could do more to promote those, but also um, uh, we've been calling for them to scrap the VAT because VAT on a social tariff is at 20%, mm -hmm. which feels shocking that the poorest people in society is still paying 20% um, tax. And that although you might think that at a, at a unit level, that's not a lot on a social tariff, that's about £15 um, a month, that if everybody on universal credit had a social tariff for their broadband, um, that would cost the exchequer £153 million a year. So in my mind, that's £153 million that are in the pockets of the people on the lowest incomes in our society. A new digital exclusion strategy would need to focus on devices, data and capability, as we've heard. Social tariffs are a common theme, but their uptake remains low. Um, so you've got sort of three types of customers for social tariffs. So you've got... 
Um, a broadband provider's existing customers. So there'll be people who are on their existing uh, levels. You've got people who could move to another provider. Um, and then you've got people who have never had broadband before. Okay. So that um, I think it's really important not to forget that third group. So that's not about them switching. It's actually about them saying they could now afford it. Um, and therefore they would get much quicker um, and probably cheaper than than what they're doing at the moment, and obviously much much more convenient for them rather than going around to internet hotspots. Um, I think another reason why uh, social tariffs are not taken up by um, the more savvy customer, but it's in that low income group, is that there's a perception that it's going to be worse, that it's going to be slower, it's going to be throttled, um, and actually most of the social tariffs are, are, are decent social tariffs they're just the same the same speed but they're just cheaper because it's for people who are on benefits so recognizing um that they can't afford those those higher prices so i think that there's a, a misconception gap but the biggest reason is they just don't know about them um that i that you know it beggars belief that why dwp hasn't told every single person on universal credit that they're entitled to a social tariff that you know that actually that um definitely industry should be making sure that people can find them on their websites ironically online of course um but, and the people at the call centers know about them but actually the government these are all about people on benefits so the government actually interacts with people on benefits all of the time um so actually they could be um the main route to um sharing this information and raising that awareness um and just making sure that people know that they're eligible for them. Um, and industry, I think, have done a, a really good job that, you know, there's a lot of, they, you know, a lot of um, free switching, free exits. Um, if you're moving onto a social tariff because of your income, then, you know, most of the companies are incredibly flexible about helping you to do that. So um, I think a lot of it is about raising awareness and raising awareness that they are, a good speed and that you're going to be able to function really well on on a social tariff i mean you can certainly do more to make that database available to decision makers but i think the other point i would make is that maybe social tariff is the wrong thing to call it if you tell people it's a social tariff they may not want it if you tell someone that you can get a 10 percent reduction if you're on pip well maybe they will start to pay attention to that so it's how you present it it's almost like a reward uh, in a sense, if you are one, in one of the qualifying benefits, not, oh, you poor person, here's a social tariff. Um, I don't think that's the right way, right way to approach it. So in terms of policy, yes, we think we're applying the idea of a social tariff. But that's not how we want the consumer to see it, perhaps. And that might be why take-up is lower than it perhaps should be. So if we want to change the reality of low uptake in social tariffs, then we need to make these tariffs more enticing. So we propose better adv advertising by the DWP to ensure claimants are aware of them, but not only that, but they know that they're high quality. And we want to make sure that there's a targeted support package for those on low incomes by also reducing VAT on social tariffs. Skills are also important. What use is a device and data on that device if people don't know how to use them? Yeah, the digital skills are really important. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely was delighted when the essential digital skills entitlement came in because that felt like a step towards the recognition that um, the very basic digital skills was something that um, people um, should be entitled to, like English and maths literacy and numeracy. Um, however, I think that... 
it feels like it's sort of stopped there. Um, and like you said, the um, DfE-funded um, Future Digital Inclusion Programme did actually um, provide funding, government funding, for those people who were the step below the um, essential digital skills entitlement. And we um, have, have been doing some work um, in three regions across the country, actually piloting how we can link community-based skills support with people progressing onto um, the essential digital skills entitlement. So um, that we've got a lot of evidence from that work that there's a very large group of people for whom they are the hardest to reach, they are the most digitally excluded, the most digitally disadvantaged, the most affected by things like poverty premium, and they are before the essential digital skills entitlement. And I think a lot of ministers think that the essential digital skills entitlement is the first step on the ladder in the digital skills ladder, if you like, whereas actually there's, you know, there's, there's, there's millions of people before that and there needs to be investment to help those people to get to that ladder. And that investment has to be in informal community-based support um, such as the things that Good Things Foundation does with the National Digital Inclusion Network. And I mean, and like with the Future Digital Inclusion um, Initiative, is that um that uh that we don't like going backwards, obviously, and we've all learned a lot of things in the last few years, but but recognizing that there is a need for that informal learning before you get to qualifications, before you get to further education, before you get to formal learning. And that's for people of all ages is so important. Um, and uh, definitely the safety net that's there in our communities is funded by, you know, we have corporate partners um, who who help to fund, fund that. There are other programs, other foundations, other um, the big lottery, for example, um, funding some of that but is it right that that safety net exists to catch the, those people who are most vulnerable in our society without the government actually investing very much in that at all there is something to do on digital skills and we found that 5.8 million people will still lack essential digital skills in 2032 if we don't do anything to help and that's why we're proposing that the department for education commits to funding a long-term digital skills program Tackling digital exclusion can help reduce the extra costs people pay by helping them get online and compare deals, but it won't eradicate the poverty premium altogether. What more can we do to tackle the poverty premium, and do we target just one or multiple? I think it's a, it's a healthy combination. I mean, so as I look at um, government, as I said, convening groups together, I think I had some early discussions in that forum before, and it was really, really excellent. We started to get a, a lot of um, kind of momentum I think collaboration across industry and banks is, is very valuable. So we started with, with Turn to Us as an example, and we're build, trying to get other firms to put that on their websites. And I'm sure if we could, that's a simple thing, a little bit of IT work, and you could have it across the whole beast. Um, I think that would be good. And as I mentioned earlier, 38,000 people in a short period of time are up to 3 million of benefits. Um, I, I think we, we, we another practical measure was we, we looked at our stores and and, and making, um, you know, as part of the National Data Bank uh, Network, we put, um, you know, working with Good Things um, Foundation, we, we set up a an ability to provide access to digital cards in, in over 30 of our branches. And I think as we look at these things, that's just us doing small things 
And the, the more people who collaborate and do those things, the better it is. And that all leads back to a convening group. If you get a group together and everybody shares their ideas, then individual effort and collaboration combined will be very effective. And, and I know it's practical and it makes a difference. And people in their hearts want to make a difference. So they just need a way, a uh, path through to find a, either a group or an idea and, and get on with it. So I think I'm optimistic. I think there's a lot we can do, but it needs both government-sponsored convening of groups, collaboration and individual initiatives. I mean, you've always looked at symptoms and causes and the extra costs that are loaded on people living in poverty are very much symptoms and you can ameliorate the symptoms. You can sit down with Tesco and have a serious conversation with them and maybe get somewhere. I tried that. I haven't got very far indeed. But there are also causes. I think we need to look at the way in which we promote financial resilience. How do we increase people's savings? Is the government promoting, for example, help to save enough, the workplace savings scheme? Are we enabling the proper signposting of people with poor financial resilience to where they can get the right help? Too many organisations want to refer people onto the right credit product, but they don't have a credit broking license from the FCA. So the whole system breaks down at stage one. But there's so much innovation out there in the private sector that others could learn from. Iceland, for example, has a, uh, has a fantastic scheme whereby you can have short-term credit that allows you to smooth out your payments over Christmas. Indeed, for some people, they will buy you a, a freezer that allow you to stock it with frozen food because that's healthier and uh, cheaper, rather, over the medium term. So private sector is doing good things. Government needs to help them do that just by tweaking regulations that, that frustrate that innovation that I think is genuinely out there. Over the last few months, we've made great progress in the energy sector. The government has decided to equalise the cost of prepayment meters and direct debits. Labour have adopted a proposal to ensure cheaper own brown food finds its way into supermarkets, but there is obviously still a lot more to do. And in my mind, the next steps are to get on looking at premiums where change has been slow. And we want the FCA, for instance, to make sure that people on low incomes are fairly charged for their risk profile, especially when it comes to products like insurance. And so there we have it. Two interlocking problems, one of digital exclusion, the other of the poverty premium, leaving consumers paying over the odds for basic goods and services. To me, it reflects just how much more there is to do to stop poorer families paying more than they might need to. In our report called Left Out, we call for a new digital exclusion strategy to improve device access, boost social tariff uptake and widen digital skills. In a modern and interconnected world where Britain aims to be a science superpower by 2030, can we really leave so many people disconnected? If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to our channel for more interesting content like this and follow us on Twitter at CSJ Think Tank for more updates.